You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Colombia continues its recovery from last week's cyber attacks. AI training data is accidentally published to GitHub. The cyber espionage techniques of Earth Luska. Clorox blames product shortages on a cyber attack. Cybersecurity incidents in industrial environments, where the wild bots are. Joe Kerrigan looks at top-level domain name exploitation. Our guest is Kristen Bell from GuidePoint Security with a look at vulnerability versus exploitability. And there's talk of potential Russia-DPRK cooperation in cyberspace. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. Reuters reports that Colombia's President Gustavo Petro, in New York for this week's U.N. general debate, said that more than 50 government agencies and private companies were affected by a ransomware attack on a widely used Internet service provider. President Petro didn't name the ISP, widely known to be IFX Networks, but he did comment that the attack's widespread impact showed the company didn't have the right cybersecurity measures in place, and he suggested that this placed it in breach of its contracts. AFP reports that Colombia was considering civil lawsuits and possibly criminal prosecution of IFX networks over what Information and Telecommunications Minister Mauricio Lizcano characterized as failures in security protocols. Researchers at Wiz yesterday reported having found that Microsoft's AI research team accidentally exposed 38 terabytes of private data, including secrets, private keys, passwords, and over 30,000 internal Microsoft Teams messages. The exposure occurred when a Microsoft employee published a bucket of open-source training data to a public GitHub repository. Users could download the training data via an Azure storage URL. However, this URL granted permissions to the entire storage account, which included two Microsoft employees' personal computer backups. Microsoft has fixed the issue and offered a reassuring statement. No customer data was exposed and no other internal services were put at risk because of this issue. No customer action is required in response to this issue. So training data isn't risk-free. It, too, can be stolen and abused. We note in full disclosure that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. 
Trend Micro says the China-aligned threat actor Earth Luska is using a new Linux backdoor based on the open-source Windows malware Trochilus. The researchers are calling the Linux variant Spry Socks. The researchers note, The backdoor contains a marker that refers to the backdoor's version number. We have identified two Spry Socks payloads that contain two different version numbers, indicating that the backdoor is still under development. In addition, we notice that the implementation of the interactive shell is likely inspired from the Linux variant of the Deruspi malware. Earthluska has been targeting public-facing servers belonging to government departments that are involved in foreign affairs, technology, and telecommunications. The threat actor is primarily interested in countries in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and the Balkans. This backdoor is installed by exploiting known vulnerabilities against unpatched systems. So, there are two lessons observers are drawing. First, patch. Please patch. And second, Linux needs some love, too. It's not all Windows out there. Cleaning product manufacturer Clorox disclosed in an SEC filing that the cyber attack it sustained on August 14th has led to ongoing consumer product availability issues. The company is currently in the process of repairing the affected infrastructure and reintegrating offline systems. It anticipates starting the transition back to normal automated order processing around the week of September 25th. While most manufacturing sites have resumed production, the full production ramp-up will take some time, and the company cannot provide an estimate for when it will fully normalize operations. Additionally, Clorox acknowledges that the financial and business impact of the attack is significant, particularly in terms of order processing delays and product shortages, which will likely have a material impact on its first-quarter financial results. Rockwell Automation has released a report looking at cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, finding that state-sponsored threat actors are responsible for nearly 60% of these attacks. Around 33% of these incidents are unintentionally enabled by internal personnel. The report found that threat actors are most intensely focused on the energy sector, over three times more than the next most frequently attacked verticals, critical manufacturing and transportation. Mark Cristiano, Commercial Director of Global Cybersecurity Services at Rockwell Automation, explained the implications of the findings. He said, Energy, critical manufacturing, water treatment, and nuclear facilities are among the types of critical infrastructure industries under attack in the majority of reported incidents. In particular, these sectors can expect to face an increasingly stringent regulatory environment. It's already tightening up with respect to disclosure. Cristiano added, Anticipating that stricter regulations and standards for reporting cybersecurity attacks will become commonplace, the market can expect to gain invaluable insights regarding the nature and severity of attacks and the defenses necessary to prevent them in the future. Netasia has published a report looking at bot-fueled attacks against businesses in the U.S. and U.K., finding that 72% of respondents suffered attacks originating in China and 66% from Russia. 53% of all bot attacks come from these two countries. The researchers note that bot attacks from Russia have increased by 82% over the past two years. The report adds... Vietnam is an outlier as third-highest country of origin, 
with 48% seeing attacks from here, despite the country accounting for just 2% of the population of Asia. Russia's immediate interest in cultivating its relationship with North Korea is the prospect of Pyongyang supplying Russia's army with artillery ammunition, as expenditures have far exceeded Russian production capability. There are, however, other potential areas of cooperation, notably in cyberspace. An essay in the Econo Times argues, both North Korea and Russia are highly capable cyberwar and cyberintelligence nations. They can disrupt or break key infrastructure and steal sensitive government information. North Korea's Lazarus group of hackers has been identified through careful process tracing to be responsible for thefts of cryptocurrency totaling tens of millions of dollars. This sort of cooperation wouldn't necessarily require much coordination. Most of North Korea's offensive cyber operations are already directed against countries whose relations with Russia are at least cool, if not downright adversarial. So sure, Russia wants that 122-millimeter cannon ammunition, even if it is a few decades old, but it might also welcome the Lazarus Group's services as an auxiliary. So keep an eye out for what Russian television is proudly, if oddly and a little uneasily, calling the Moscow-Pyongyang Axis. No, they're really saying Axis. Like, it's a good thing. Go figure. Coming up after the break, Joe Kerrigan looks at top-level domain name exploitation. Our guest is Kristen Bell from GuidePoint Security with a look at vulnerability versus exploitability. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. 
Let's take a moment and think about vulnerability versus exploitability. They are not the same things, and the nuance between them should inform an organization's approach to risk assessment. Kristen Bell is Director of Application Security at GuidePoint Security, and she shares her expertise on the difference between the two. So I think in general, the consensus kind of is that vulnerabilities in and of themselves may not be executable, but they could be. So vulnerabilities are all things that could contribute to an attack, whereas exploitabilities are a subset of that, right? So exploitabilities to me is something that you can take that vulnerability and directly execute an attack on either a user or system or or whatnot. Whereas vulnerabilities that fall outside of that category really give maybe a component of attack or may give the attacker more information to craft an attack. So in terms of folks coming at this and defending themselves, is is this a matter of kind of taking stock at what they have and then deciding which is which? In some cases. So I've, I had a client, a very large, you know, kind of name brand uh, company that decided to really make that differentiation more so than I've ever seen in any other environment. And uh, they really put all the prioritization on remediation of anything that was exploitable and everything else that they felt wasn't kind of sat in a holding tank. The problem with that is that if you ask people very specifically around specific vulnerabilities, which ones are exploitable or not, you may get some banter back and forth and some debate, right? So there, there are different schools of thought about what makes something exploitable versus what doesn't. And that's why I say that very high-level definition is pretty generic. So it's a slippery slope to kind of go down that path. I really prefer that people look more at risk, right? What kind of risk does this particular vulnerability pose to the application? If it's obviously exploitable, so like SQL injection or cross-site scripting, right? Then yeah, absolutely. That's going to that's gonna impact the severity level of that vulnerability. The, those exploitable vulnerabilities are going to have a higher severity rating than the less exploitable kinds of vulnerabilities. What about the, the vulnerabilities? I mean, is it fair to say that over time things can change their status? You know, something that's just a vulnerability over time as processes change within an organization, they may become exploitable. That's what we have always said as an industry, right? That as people got smarter, you know, when I first started in AppSec so many years ago, people were still finding the very simplistic SQL injection attacks and, and vulnerabilities within applications. And now so much, we don't see that as much, right? Those, those SQL injection attacks that are exploitable are much, much, they take much more education on the behalf of the attacker. Um, so and we also, you know, back in the day when there were a lot of low hanging fruit like that, we kind of talked about the, the exploitability factor being different and that also impacted the severity level. So if you had to have a very skilled attacker, so say like cross-site request forgery, then the severity level might, and the risk level might be a little bit lower just based on the fact that you have to have a very experienced targeted attack with a with a very experienced attacker versus a script kitty who can find or one equals one, you know, in an application and a login form. But I think to your point, over time, as people have sort of taken AppSec a little bit more seriously, 
and shored up some of that, those, those sort of easier attacks. This exploitability factor is impacted by how skilled does somebody have to be to form that attack and Will, will attackers get better? We, we've seen that they have, right? They have been able to increase what they're doing. We're seeing it through open source vulnerabilities now like Log4j. We're seeing them find different kinds of attack vectors that maybe we weren't paying as much attention to before. So yes, I think that we need to always be evaluating and reevaluating what's out there as far as the attack surface and the vulnerabilities that we're finding to see how they, they impact changes over time. What are your recommendations for folks setting uh, the amount of risk they assign to various vulnerabilities and and exploitabilities? How how should they come out that and and set their priorities? So I think, like I said, it's twofold. They should have vulnerability severity levels that are mapped to their organizational risk profile in general, right? So some people say in retail may bump up certain um, kinds of vulnerabilities from highs to criticals. Most consulting companies I've seen don't risk things or call out criticals. They call out highs because critical can be so objective from organization to organization. So we tend to not get into those kinds of debates, but we encourage clients to level up to critical on things that that for their risk organization, they want to see addressed first and foremost based on their, their business vertical or whatever might be the case if they're, you know, healthcare organization or PCI, you know, have PCI requirements and those sorts of things. But you take that. So once they've established and sort of gone through the vulnerabilities, made sure that the risk, that the severity levels are appropriate for their organization, then they also need to look at the risk profiles of their application portfolio so that they can say, okay, now if we have a high risk application, a higher critical in those cases needs an SLA that's a shorter time period than say a medium risk or a low risk application. So a low risk application may have a 30 day window to fix a higher critical, whereas a high risk application may have three to five days. Um, And that really does help with not burdening developers and giving them sort of guidance on where they should spend their time and how they should fix their issues. That's Kristen Bell from GuidePoint Security. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hey, Joe. Hi, Dave. So... When I think of domain names for the top-level domains for organizations in the United States, I generally think of .com .com. as being the default. That's right. And I think I'm right in thinking that overall. I so, too. Yeah. So there's an interesting article that came by from uh, Brian Krebs over at Krebs on Security about the .us top-level domain being used in a lot of phishing scams. So what's going on here, Joe? Every country or most countries, I don't know of a country that doesn't have this, but they all get a two-letter top-level domain, a country code TLD, CCTLD. Yeah. Is what that's called. Uh, And then it's up to the country how they want to manage it. So, for example, TV, I can't remember what actual country it is, 
I know it's a small series of islands in the Pacific. Yeah. But what they've decided to do is they're just going to sell all their domains. Right. Uh, so you can buy a .tv domain for like 45 bucks. Yeah. And they get a portion of that. And I imagine that goes right to the government as a stream of revenue. Sure. There are also .uk where the UK has decided, no, we're not going to use .com. We're going to use .co.uk. So every website in the UK has to be registered under one of our domains. Yeah. Well, the U.S. has something similar. We have the .us domain. Mm. That's that's our, here in America, that's our CCTLD. Right. And there is something called the U.S. nexus requirement, mm. which is a requirement that theoretically limits registrations to parties with some kind of stake in the United States. Okay. Uh, now, I looked at these regulations, Dave. They're all five pages long. Okay. And there are three classes of, of registrants. One is an individual who is either a citizen or a permanent resident of the United States. Another is a company that's in the United States. And the third is a foreign company that has a legitimate business within the United States. Okay. Well, it would seem that these requirements are not being properly enforced because according to this article between May 1st of 2022 and April 30th of this year the Interisle Consulting Group found 30,000 fishing domains registered with .us huh 30,000 okay that means somebody is not applying these these nexus requirements now uh, the Krebs article points out that this is managed by GoDaddy, but if you go to about.us and you you do a domain name search and you want to buy a domain, there's a bunch of different services under there that you can buy a domain through. Sure. It's not just GoDaddy. GoDaddy is the first one. I don't know if GoDaddy has some principle, you know, first among equals kind of thing, huh. you know, going on there or, or if they're in charge of things or whatever. Right. Um, but it's clear that somebody is not enforcing these nexus requirements. Is it a kind of a self-attestation kind of thing? Yeah. If you're a citizen, that's essentially what it is. You just have to say that you're a citizen or a permanent resident. Okay. There's nothing in there that describes, in the requirements, that describes what that attestation must look like. Mm -hmm. I could probably scroll on a piece of paper, take a picture of it, and email it in. You know, <laughs> right. I'm reminded of bench warmers where the guy says, can I see your birth certificate? And he shows him a picture of it says, I'm 12. Right. <laughs> right. right. Um, but it's that kind of thing. It's pretty easy to get one of these domains and people are abusing it. Yeah. And, and the, the, the .us gives people a false sense of security. Right. There is a, uh, a guy by the name of Dean Marks, who is the Meritus Executive Director of the Coalition for Online Accountability. Hmm. Their organization has been critical and they note that a lot of other people in the, in the EU don't have this problem. People like Hungary, New Zealand, and Finland. Proof of identity or evidence of incorporation is required. So you probably have to give them some kind of photo ID to register one of these names. Right. Uh, even doing something as simple as that would probably cut down on the number of bad actors registering .us domains. Yeah. Interesting. Now you have to do an extra step. Now I have to, you know, come up with some fake documents. Probably easy to find, but it's more work. Right. And these guys are, they're like me. They're all lazy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to do the least amount of work possible. They're just going to go out and try to get some kind of lookalike domain or something else. Yeah. Real quick before I let you go, yes. uh, we've seen some hurricanes making landfall here in the U.S., and Correct. with that always comes 
scammers not that far behind. That's right. It's I, I've said this before, I think on Hacking Humans, but I, I envision the scammers sitting in their little scam offices, running their scam businesses, and mm-hmm. on the wall, there's the big calendar of scams. Right. Uh, and right now, we're in hurricane season. So that's uh-huh. that's one of the things that you're going to be sending out emails about. CISA has a uh, warning about hurricane-related scams on their webpage, and uh, they recommend you check out the Federal Trade Commission's Stay Alert to Disaster-Related Scams page ah. and before giving to a charity, which I think lets you tells you how to go through and vet a charity. Right, right. Which yeah. is always a good idea, regardless of why you're giving money. Yeah, good thing to share with your loved ones, right? right? Yep. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks so much for joining it's us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. 
Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 